0: Hello and welcome to the At Sea Level podcast, brought to you by Intelligent Briefings, a Lynchpin Media brand. My name is Jess Phillips, Director of Strategic Content at Lynchpin Media, and this is the podcast where we speak to technology chiefs about how they're making waves in the industry, chatting to them about their career journey so far, their management style, and how they're planning for what's yet to come. Delighted to introduce Martin Rahak, CEO and founder of Resistant AI to this edition of At Sea Level. Resistant AI builds solutions for the security of machine learning and statistical techniques applied to credit risk scoring, fraud detection, anti-money laundering and other financial decisions. Prior to his current role, Martin led the Cisco Cognitive Threat Analytics CTA team. CTA was part of the advanced threat portfolio and provided advanced threat detection by analysis of network traffic for more than 20 25 million users worldwide. Prior to his Cisco role, he was the CEO and founder of Cognitive Security, acquired by Cisco in 2013. Martin holds an engineering degree from Ecole Centrale Paris and a PhD in AI from CTU in Prague. So thank you for joining me this morning, Martin. Can you just tell us where you're joining from?
1: So I'm joining from Prague, from our Assistant AI office.
0: That's a nice place to be, I bet.
1: (laughs) It is because we are in the very center of the town. Can yeah. be actually a functional monastery
0: and a good place to be it's, in Europe. It's either, yeah, pretty it's cool, a
1: good place to be.
0: <laughs> so the first section of our podcast is what we call Memory Lane, and it's where we take a trip down memory lane to discuss your career journey to date. And uh, we do always warn guests that the first question requires a little bit of imagination. So imagine we've done the impossible, we've created a time machine and gone back in time. And you've come face to face with a 16 year old version of yourself, perhaps the year that you left school, maybe made some big life decisions. How would you today describe your current job role to that person? And what do you think they'd make of it?
1: I don't think I would understand. (laughs) I, I don't think I would listen either. Because at 16, you obviously know everything and you have all the experience you will ever need. So, which was very much my case. I still didn't leave the school. But uh, one thing happened. I met internet for the first time. It was basically three years after revolution. So after we got rid of communism. And uh, it was also the year when basically the first internet connection to Czechoslovakia or then Czech Republic popped up. And I was lucky enough to be there from my high school and <clears throat> i got my first email address then which i could use to email one person exactly so i would have told myself like this internet thing is going to be important in your life because it's going to completely change everything you know about the world mm-hmm. and everything you're learning about the world outside communism right now and the world you are getting into is not going to stay like that it's going to change dramatically in the next 20 years and I wouldn't have believed myself.
0: It would have been almost overwhelming, wouldn't it? If, if you knew what was, what was going to happen and how the world was going to be changed by this it's, technology. And that's exactly
1: why people should love being young and appreciate that. Because you have all those unknowns waiting for you. And that has been kind of my life story. Like I've been dealing with unknown threats and risks all my life. And that's what we appreciate, and that's how basically we build our team culture, and the culture of the team of people working with me is really concentrating on that. So how do you deal with the unknown? How do you think one step further than your adversary, and how do you win in those situations
0: mm-hmm. so that's become a core component of your your life experience has become a core component of your of your business
1: I think so like I think that uh, Who you are should shape what you do. Otherwise, you will end up being unhappy. Mm -hmm. And I don't like being unhappy, as no one does. And I think that discovering what you should be doing early on is basically a key component of happiness.
0: Absolutely. Well, tell us more about your career journey to date then. What are some of the big moments that have led to where you are?
1: So several. I think that date when I met internet was one. By the way, the guy sitting next to me ended up building the first Czech, like Yahoo clone and later on Google clone and email service, and he became a billionaire. So <laughs> I actually missed out on that one because he was a ca- couple of years older and dropped out of school. Wow. But that's, uh, that was, I, I'm lucky enough to live in the age of opportunities, but my journey has been like very kind of straightforward finished my high school, went to study nuclear engineering and mathematics. After that, I randomly applied to study in France, thinking that it would be in English, which turned out to be a wrong assumption. So I got off the bus in Paris a couple of years later and went to school and started speaking English, and that wasn't a big success. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to learn French very quickly. But uh, I was very lucky because I got, without knowing what it was, into one of the really great schools, one of the French Pracole. And I learned engineering basically of everything, from like X-ray machine and crystallography to civil engineering and electronics. And that was a big experience for me. After that, I fell in love with security. So I started working on telecosystems, security, mobile banking before mobiles became smart and uh, after that i decided it's that in 2001 staying in telco wasn't helpful so i tried to go against the trend which is kind of the what i think that all young people should be doing you should be going against like the common wisdom Mm -hmm. because that's what young people should be doing by default. <laughs> and I decided to study AI, which was in 2004, basically neglected sleeping field that no one was doing. I joined a PhD program, started working on some cool programs for basically US DoD, like being in Czech Republic back. And I progressively built a security group in that team. In 2008, we left to basically start a spin off company the first one or second one at the university ever. And uh, after that experience, we got VC funding and we started a company called Cognitive Security, which was using AI and machine learning to discover like advanced attackers in computer networks. And we always say that we were helped by two governments. First, U.S. DOD kept funding us. Being Europeans, we expected that once you start doing Company, basically you lose the funding. In the US, it was the opposite. Our funding was doubled. So we could actually grow and we could do more like dangerous and forward-looking research. But the second government which helped us was Chinese, because it was exactly the moment when China decided that they needed more technology and that there was an easy way how to get it. So security suddenly became very hot field. It was clear that having three components or three products in the network didn't cut it. And eventually we started partnering with Cisco Systems who bought the company in 2013 when we were raising the Series A. So I got into Cisco with the whole team, then 25 people, spent six years leading the R&D center in Prague. And when I was leaving Cisco, we had something like 25 million users that we were protecting from advanced threats by basically doing cloud-based machine learning. Because after 12 years in the field, we considered that you should do something else. The field was getting crowded. It was becoming, what we were doing was becoming common sense and common wisdom. And that's the point when people like me leave because I no longer have any value. I love when things are new and fresh and unknown. And when they get get stabilized and normal, I kind of get bored. And that was the time we started resistant AI. So me and a couple of my co-founders basically went and said, well, if we were to become criminals, how would we go about stealing money in today's world? And we didn't want to do anything about ransomware because that's kind of uncool and crude. But we looked at how business was being conducted and we saw the wave of automation coming. We saw all of the fintechs changing the world of banking. And we realized how open to manipulation these algorithms are. Basically, you take people out of the equation. You look at the industry and you basically say, well, I will automate those like people. They just do five things. But you forget about things they don't tell you because they check that the person on the ID is the one who's like sitting in front of you. They also tell you that that person doesn't quite correspond visually to what is on the paper he's handing you. And this kind of stuff gets forgotten. And we basically started building technologies that look for those things, for the common sense that gets lost in the automation. And that's what resistant AI is all about. Like we want to stop the automation from being insecure.
0: Mm-hmm. We
1: want to make it more secure.
0: It's such an interesting way of going about it as well. I can just imagine a boardroom of, so what would the criminals be doing? And how that kind of led to the business decisions?
1: Yeah, and that's, that's the kind of life we like to lead, in a, in a way, because uh, if, if you look at the, the industry, if you go farther east from Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, and the countries in the region, you don't get, you basically see that crime is normal part of life. We live right on the edge. And we can basically be perceptive to all, everything that happens to the east. Mm-hmm. But we have the values that correspond to what, what happens on the West, which makes us kind of uniquely qualified. And this is why, like Czech Republic has a very good security industry, mm-hmm. because we have those two influences.
0: So fascinating, isn't it? And I mean, this year banking's changed more than ever with you know COVID and lockdowns mm-hmm. and things like that. So how has that impacted your business? How have you had to kind of change your innovation strategy?
1: So we did. Not not too much. Like because we kind of thought that what was what happened in 2020 and 21 would happen over the next five years. It was already a kind of a foregone conclusion. It was just being delayed. Kobe so you were just, ready for it. We were kind of ready for it and we didn't <laughs> complain.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, we had a board meeting when the main topic on the agenda was actually a cartoon where basically we heard, it was a cartoon of a couple of guys from like typical mafia types sitting around the table and saying, well, we decided to switch to cybercrime because we have no choice. Because you mentioned that banks had to change, but who had to change as well for the criminals? You can't really, or you couldn't really pickpocket people on the street anymore. You couldn't like hide in the crowd and like attack people, not that anyone was doing that. So people had to figure out a new way how to steal money and how to make a living, which led to complete shift in the way how crime is being conducted. And it also underlines the changes, like how banking functions and financial services. Like you can't really make a living as a bank robber today. Like decently, you would walk into the bank, point the gun at someone, and you would ask for all the cash in the bank. You probably walk away with like 500 pounds. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. Why would anyone keep cash in a bank ranch today? No one needs that. So you need to adapt as a criminal to that. And that's an even bigger change from our perspective.
0: And how have you kind of addressed that?
1: So we address this in two ways. Like what we want to do is to remove all of these stupid questions. What I hate the most is when my bank calls me after, I don't know how many decades of being a customer and says, I need to see your new ID because the old one on file is expired. Like ultimately, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just like some requirement which doesn't help them a single YOTA while they are ignoring some of the high risk behavior. But statistically they are helping to achieve the compliance. So what we do is the opposite. Our systems identify the risk in the complete life cycle, using the information intelligently as you as a customer would wish banks would do. So instead of having people going through like all of the customers randomly, we say, well, based on the behavior and based on the past practice, why don't you look at those like 1% of transactions that kind of look funny and shortlist this while ignoring 98% of the busy work, which doesn't help anyone. And that's kind of the combination we think is winning. I don't believe in AI making life and death decisions anytime soon, because it shouldn't,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially not in finance. What we believe in is combining AI to basically remove the busy work and like mundane tasks of people and let them do their jobs properly. And that's what we achieve for the customers. We really like unleash the people they have in the company. are doing menial tasks instead of doing their jobs and we let them concentrate on the job don't spend two minutes on case but why not spend two hours on a small subset of cases Mm -hmm. because this brings much more value
0: so technology enhancing productivity which is what everyone wants
1: (laughs) it's not that it's like technology empowering people to be more human Mm -hmm. because you want a human judgment in that process eventually You want humans to understand all of the like odds and ends of people's lives. You can't really take automated decisions on that, but you don't want people to spend like time. If I give you two examples, one thing we do is looking at documents and forgeries. So we look at electronic documents, like typically bank statements, pay slips, utility bills, anything that the banks process even invoices for banks, for houses being built, submitted to bank for mortgages. And we see all those changes and modifications. So instead of just blindly looking at 200 of them, as the banks do now, they submit these to their employees, we say, well, this is 200, but you should look at those five because we see something interesting. We see some strange stuff happening there. Or when we look at, let's say, binary transactions, which is the second system we have, We basically say, well, why would all the people in this village be ordering iPhones right now? It's probably something cheating and stealing using identity theft. And those people would get pretty pissed when they get the bill at the end of the month without ordering anything. And this is the kind of coincidences we go after and we help to discover early on in the
0: process so fascinating it's yeah it's not an area that i know heaps about so it's really (laughs) fascinating listening to you talk about it let's move on to talk about your management style a little bit so this section of the podcast is what we call the chief um so my question for you is what would be your advice on the best approach for communicating your area or the area of expertise for other c-level executives with the wider c-suite and the board
1: so That's complex because I actually, I don't consider myself a manager in the traditional sense. Uh, We consider ourselves as a company and as a team explorers, and that's kind of how we function. So probably the closest thing we have to management style is like pirate ship. So most people have to agree. We have a very open communication. We don't have any plank and sharks waiting, hopefully. And we have to be very open with each other because if we make a mistake being a startup, we can die very easily. We don't have too much like cash or we don't have extra time. So we have to make the right decisions. So when we speak to the board, I'm actually very lucky and I'm blessed to have a board of professionals, investors who know VC game and who know the business. And who can advise me so my strategy is being perfectly open because they are not there to like manage my business they are there to give me advice to give me introductions to correct my mistakes if i make them and when i make them but they don't tell me what to do they ask me why haven't i done something which is right what i try to do as a board member you try to open the perspectives and make people think more and broader so that's what I appreciate in the board conversations. It's really the time of the week or the month when I think abroad and I think mm-hmm. about what could come, what is on the horizon.
0: What about challenges then? What are some of the big or key challenges that you come across in your role? And how do you unwind out of work?
1: Like we have plenty of challenges, but uh, I'm actually, first thing you need is to delegate challenges away. So I'm lucky to have people um, around me. I've been working with for basically 15 years. So we still have the core team very intact. And when when someone new joins the team, the main criteria for hiring is basically, would they fit into the culture? Do they fit into who we are? And do they fit with the company values? And this resolves most of the challenges because at the end, many company challenges are human because you made a compromise. You made a compromise on whom to hire, how to operate as a company. You said, well, this is something you're going to handle down the road, and you actually never are. Like people never, ch- never change, and they almost never change for the better, in my experience. So mm-hmm. I may be skeptical too
0: <laughs>
1: but it comes with a job.
0: Yeah. The,
1: so the challenges are, need to be avoided. As I said, open communication, the fact that we teams that we have in the company are very independent. So they are engineers who also have the job of product managers. And they have their own UX teams, designers, and everyone working with them and for them. So they make the decisions, and they are responsible and accountable to themselves. If they make their own decisions, they can end up working the weekends and nights to fix it. But it is their decision. Mm-hmm. And this is the culture that drives good decisions. So what we try to do is have the shortest path possible between the customer and the engineering team building the core of the product. If customer has an issue, they can get to engineers quite quickly. Typically, one, one case, which is remarkable, uh, we had a customer connecting to us on Friday night. They wanted to finish before the weekend. So it was 7 p.m. on Friday night, one customer called us. Well, it kind of works. I'm not quite happy because you, the results are kind of iffy, but uh, let's uh, let's consider this done and move on. And we said, well, stop. In two minutes, we got the elite of the team on the phone. He looked into the systems within three minutes, saw that they were using different language and basically headers got scrambled. And we told them exactly what to fix within like three more minutes. So in 15 minutes, he was basically done. Everything was smooth and he could go home for the weekend happily, mm-hmm. which basically this style of management removes uh, six or seven meetings with five people each. Yeah, And that's exactly what we want to achieve. We want to remove everything you can because simplicity gives you speed, learning, and security. So we try to basically not, not to function as a company, but we try to function as you would in your normal life as a family. I
0: think that's a great philosophy. And all of that leads to customer and happiness. happiness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is what you want at the end of the day. That's
1: what want because we thrive in transitions as a team. We mm. love when something is new and fresh, which means by definition yeah. that the customers know less about what we do than we do. Yeah. And one thing I was taught in, actually I call Central was that you have an obligation to help your customer. In that situation, you have an advantage, so you should never use it for your own benefit. You should always use it for the benefit of the customer. Explain, consult, guide, and let the customer find the value. And this leads to the best relationships you can have with customers. And that's that's the whole company value, basically. It's be the expert in what you do, know machine learning and security perfectly. Second, be really trustworthy in terms of like How you deliver the service. Never lose the data. Never compromise on security. Never compromise on information, like security issues. Be the best you can be. And the third, be helpful. Like if you say no, have a reason, explain how to achieve the objective. And try to help people not to say just no. And customers like that in general.
0: Absolutely. Communication is important. Let's look at the year ahead then, so in this section of the podcast, we find out how you're planning your strategy for the year ahead. So what are some of the key goals for you in your role in, over the next 12 months?
1: So the goals are actually quite shifting because we are growing faster than we expected. <laughs> and actually there is much bigger need for our services than it was a year ago. So I would say that a year ago, majority of our customers were Czech or Belgium. So markets where we started. Now we actually have majority of new customers from UK, Western Europe, Israel, and starting to open a US market. So we have definitely increased the geographic coverage and the size of the customer we serve. The second trend we see is that criminals are getting better. So they learned how to live with COVID. They understood that if you are a criminal, Robbing a bank is really easy thing for police to investigate because you have like 25 cameras on every single street. You can go to find the night's images and then just post them on the internet. If you rob the bank electronically or by applying for a mortgage worth a million pounds, you make about 100 times more money than the cash you would walk away from a branch. The probability you get caught is about 50 to 100 times lower. So why would you bother getting a gun and walking into the back branch when you can make much more money without even leaving your apartment? If you take some basic security precautions, you are perfectly safe. And criminals realize that, and they do attack uh, processes like this, and they do make more money. So we have customers who suffer this, and they end up discovering that some of their customers may not be the best people around.
0: You just mentioned how your plans for the year ahead include growing and expanding into new territories mm-hmm. how How will you shape your strategy to ensure it aligns with the need of local markets and will will partners be important for this
1: yes we we like working with partners, and we like working with partners that are experts in the field that bring value, and that's always remarkable when you have that cultural click with a partner with most companies you just walk in and you, you can understand that there is no like common culture and in those cases we simply walk out really being polite about it but we don't invest in relationship the when we invest is when we can have some great partnerships and now we build basically two or three where we see a common culture we see this like trait to help companies and to be on the side of your customer and that's that's the kind of partners we love so i can't really name them yet (laughs) yeah but uh this is our main criteria for partnership basically consistency with our values and helpfulness to the customers
0: sounds like you're gonna have a busy year ahead
1: (laughs) (laughs) it is already like probably the busiest august of my life
0: oh wow (laughs) so
1: and our like sales is complaining that we have too many customers. So yeah. I would say that we have a busy year ahead mm. of us, but, uh, what we appreciate is the learning opportunity yeah. because this is just scratching the surface and we have lived through this in the cybersecurity. So we saw when the RSA, the biggest trade show in the industry was something like 500 people meeting in Moscone center. Now it's about 5,000 people and they don't fit into Moscone Center in San Francisco anymore. So they basically cover the whole two blocks around it. And we expect that the same will happen in the fraud space
0: mm-hmm. because
1: so much crime is moving there and so much criminal activity needs response that we will see many more companies spawning in that space. Yeah, And we want to be leaders. So we want to be one of the first and we want to help the customers to beat those challenging like attackers.
0: What would be your advice to other CEOs or other startups that are experiencing that growth? How, how can they manage that?
1: Well, my, my first advice is that if you have a growth and those challenges, you are very lucky. Mm. So <laughs> it already means that you are in the like top 1% of the companies, so, which is amazing. So having this kind of trouble is a good trouble. And I have to remind my people when they like work until midnight that this is actually a good thing to do. The And you wouldn't believe how people don't see this. So basically, if you work too much, if you work hard, if you grow, it means your startup is doing well. If you don't have enough work and leave the office at 5 p.m., it's probably not so great. So the second advice is even if you grow, uh, like don't do anything to betray the culture you have. Stick to the culture you have because ultimately the field where you are, the customers you have, pick you for the culture and nothing else. So if you change, you lose those customers, you, you disappoint them and you kind of start being less efficient in learning as well. And the third advice I have is Like don't play like a big company when you are not. Mm -hmm. So don't create a level of management that's kind of too senior and too big. It might mean that you will have to have people that join you in some role and suddenly you will bring someone on top of them. But it's much better than bringing someone too early and that person will basically create a level of management and they will not be able to work in a startup context, which is changing rapidly. And they all will have to leave. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It sounds like not too much, especially in some U.S. startups, but we see this as a major disruption in the life of those people. Like you essentially sell them your startup. You make them leave their well-paying, nice jobs. Typically in big corporations, they join the startup and they are not successful. And my advice is don't do this. Like hire the people who like and who know how to work in a startup. And who go with into this with open eyes and not just from the excitement, I need this to be on my CV, but I don't know what I'm going into.
0: That's great advice. Thank you. The last section of the podcast we're gonna hand over to you, Martin. So it's called Against the Clock, and you'll have roughly two minutes to speak uninterrupted on your area of expertise. So the main thing to bear in mind is what one piece of advice you'd like to share with other C-level executives or a lesson that you'd like to pass on. So when you're ready, I'll hand over to you.
1: Okay. Okay, that's actually a challenging thing. But let me tell you how we see the future of fintech and finance. First, we see that fintech will merge into finance. It's going to become one because there is going to be no finance without technology. And there is not one anything Second thing we expect is that all of the back-office tasks that are currently kind of unexciting for most banks and organizations will become critical in your basically survivability as a team. So invest into them, invest into their automation, but in careful automation of those tasks, because that's what's going to protect you from basically your money being taken away overnight and converted into Bitcoin of someone else, which is not what you want. And my next piece of advice is that once you automate, you must keep evolving. It's not something that you build a system, you consider it secure, and you keep it going for like six years. Systemic can be secure for something like six days. But after that, it needs to be changed. It needs to be constantly changing, evolving. And you must accept this. There is no security in obscurity. And there is no security in certifications or being slow. You must be fast and you must move faster than the attacker. And that's exactly why machine learning and AI is important because it identifies those hot spots that are going to become pains and helps you to handle them and deal with them efficiently and soon enough before they become basically bloody. And that's my advice. Like, don't sleep on your success. Keep evolving, keep changing, keep going forward.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been really good to chat to you today. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks for very good questions.
0: This sadly brings us to the end of this edition of At Sea Level. To our guest, Martin Rahak, CEO and founder of Resistant AI, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And we'll be back with the next installment of At Sea Level very soon.